You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And I'm going to invite each and every one of you to grab your Bible now and go to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning. You'll find Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. There might be a couple of those ESV scripture journals left in the foyer. You're welcome to take one of those as well and use that to take notes or sketch or whatever you do to stay engaged with the biblical text as we go throughout this series of Colossians and Philemon. The full text on which today's teaching is based is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. I'm going to invite you to stand If you're willing and able for the reading of God's word, we stand to show our reverence and our readiness, our eagerness to hear from God this morning. So listen carefully to these words from Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have just begun this new series called Preeminent. It's going to be a study of two of Paul's letters, Colossians and Philemon. This is Paul the Apostle who started off as Paul the persecutor of Christians, and then he encountered the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. And that encounter changed everything for him. He was commissioned to preach the gospel. He traveled the known world, sharing the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus with others. Paul the persecutor became Paul the pastor, the church planter, the missionary. And he even went on to be persecuted himself for the Christian faith. He was imprisoned on numerous occasions. And he writes this letter, Colossians, from prison. It's one of the four captivity or prison epistles that Paul wrote from inside a prison cell or under house arrest somewhere. Paul didn't plant this church in Colossae, the church that he's writing to, but one of his friends, one of his co-workers named Epaphras did. Epaphras started the church, and then the church was going well. The Christians had a good reputation. We saw that last week. But at some point, something happened. And Epaphras brought a report to Paul in prison, informing him of what was happening in the Colossian church. And that's what motivated Paul to write this letter. What was it that was happening A band of false teachers. A band of false teachers had gained a hearing in the ancient city of Colossae. 
We've been referring to these false teachers as the philosophers because of what Paul says about them in chapter 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Human tradition, elemental spirits, this sounds like some strange stuff. What exactly were these false teachers suggesting? What were they teaching? Well, we don't have all the pieces of that puzzle. But as we go through the letter, we'll assemble all the pieces we can and we'll begin to see what sort of images emerge. What is clear, even from the very beginning of the letter here, is that whatever they were teaching, it was not according to Christ. It was not in agreement with Christ. They were adding to Christ. It seems that these philosophers were not suggesting that the early Christians should reject or abandon Jesus, but that they should add to him. They were promoting a Jesus plus approach to spirituality. You know, today, it seems like everything comes with a plus sign, doesn't it? There's Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, ESPN Plus. A few years ago, Time Magazine did a story on how the plus sign took over the world. There's a reason for that, the article of that piece says. Here's the key line from the Time Magazine story, key for our purposes this morning anyways. The value of plus is that it implies more, better, premium, without being specific as to content, scale, or degree of premiumness. In other words, you can have more. More of what? Who knows, but I want it. I want it. It's intentionally vague, right? It awakens something within us. You've heard of Disney, but this is Disney+. Plus. It stirs something within us. Makes us feel like we're missing out. There's more to be had. Something like that was going on on the streets of ancient Colossae all those years ago. These philosophers weren't saying, abandon Jesus. They were saying, you've heard of Jesus? I want to tell you about Jesus plus. Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus magic. Jesus plus mysticism. Jesus plus the worship of other spiritual beings. See, they were treating Jesus as one of many options on the spiritual buffet. Sure, have a little Jesus on your plate. We've heard of him. He's good and all, but he's a bit outdated. You should add to that. Have a little of this. These beliefs, those practices, pile it all on the plate together. There's a word for this. It's called syncretism. Syncretism. It's the mixing of religious beliefs and practices from a wide variety of sources. It's still very common today. What you need, some will say, is Jesus plus superstition. Jesus plus spiritual crystals. Jesus plus something else. Paul wrote this letter, Colossians, to teach the church of every age a very important lesson. And that lesson is this. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. 
Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus is not one of many options on the spiritual buffet. No, he is preeminent. We see that word in our passage today. He is supreme. He surpasses all others. He is sufficient for whatever you are facing. Nowhere is that clearer than in the passage we're going to study today, the second half of Colossians chapter 1. This passage probably is one of the most important texts in all of the Bible for understanding who Jesus is. In fact, I would say if you came today and you're a bit skeptical, you're not really sure what you believe about the identity of Jesus, this is a passage you must deal with, you must think through. And if you came today and you are convinced of the identity of Jesus, but maybe there's someone in your life who isn't, this is a great passage to share with them. Here, in this passage, Paul, in poetic fashion, will show us the unparalleled power of Jesus Christ. The unparalleled power of Jesus Christ. And he does so with three strokes of the pen. First, he writes of the work of Christ in creation. Second, he writes of the work of Christ in the new creation. And finally, he writes of our response to Christ's work. So, the work of Christ in creation, the work of Christ in new creation, and then our response. That's where we're going today. First, Christ's work of creation. Verse 15. Here in the first three verses of this passage, and we're going to move through these slowly because there's a lot to see and to apply to our lives here. But in the first three verses, Paul is going to teach us about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and does. But we're going to start with who Jesus is. He uses two very important terms here in the first verse, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Let's start with the image. God is invisible. God is invisible. Think about some of the stories in the New Testament, some of the things we're taught about God. In the prologue to John's gospel, John tells us God is invisible. No one has seen him. No one has seen him. In one of Paul's other letters, he talks about God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him or can see him. Now, why is that? Why can't we see God? Do you remember that climactic scene in the very first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember the scene at the end when the Nazis open the Ark of the Covenant? And Indy, Indy knows what to do because he went to Sunday school. We learned that earlier in the movie. Indy went to Sunday school, so he knows what to do. What does he say? Close your eyes, Marion. Close your eyes. The Nazis, with eyes wide open, are consumed by the glory of God. Consumed. Now, the scene gets, it stretches it a bit with all the spirits flying around, right? And it was made in 81, so if you watch it now, it just looks like bad claymation. But it did get this basic point right. Man cannot see God and live. Man cannot see God and live. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, 
When Moses begs God, show me your glory, what does God say? God says, Moses, you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. See, sinful humanity cannot have that type of intimate face-to-face relationship with the holy God. But with the coming of Christ, something changed. Something changed. He, Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. He reveals God to us. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know the character and the will of God. He's the image of the invisible God and he's the firstborn of all creation. Now we must define this part carefully. Paul does not mean that Jesus is the first created being. He can't mean that because of what he'll go on to say in this passage. He'll go on to teach us that through Jesus, all things were created. So Jesus is creator, not created. So he doesn't mean that Jesus is the first created being. What What then does he mean by this word firstborn? In the time and culture in which Paul wrote, the firstborn would have been the one who had claim of the Father's inheritance. See, Paul's using this word metaphorically here, not literally. He wants us to understand that just as the firstborn in the family would have been the rightful heir to all that the Father had, all the, po- all the power, all the authority in the family, the authority of the very Father himself would have been given to the firstborn, that's the image that he wants us to now apply to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn, meaning he has all the authority all the power of God himself, of God himself. He is the one who is God. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know the character and the will of God himself. Now that's who Jesus is. Paul then tells us what Jesus did and what he's doing now. Look at the next couple of verses with me. Verses 16 and 17. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, notice the prepositions. There's a bunch of them. The tiniest words, like ants, often carry the most weight. So we're going to note the prepositions and notice the repetition of the phrase, all things. All things. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Now this might be mind-blowing for you. You probably know the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But when you read that verse, when you hear that verse, I wonder if you picture Jesus, the creator. Paul certainly wants you to. He wants us to see the creative power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All things were created by him. Everything we can imagine. Things high and low. Things very close and very far away. Things seen and unseen, whatever you can imagine, whether those things, 
people, whether they realize it, acknowledge it or not, they were created by Christ and they owe Him their allegiance as you and I do. Now, at the end of verse 16, Paul reiterates that point just to make sure that it sinks in. All things were created through Him, through Jesus, and now he adds, for Him, meaning for His glory. If Christ created you, then you owe Him everything, your life, your worship, your service, your all. We are to glorify Him. Christ is the cosmic Christ, the creator of the universe. Everything we see, everything we know. And then in verse 17, Paul tells us not just what Christ did then, but what he's doing now. What is Jesus doing right now? We know he's created the world, but what about now? Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is Jesus doing right now? He's holding the universe together. He's holding it together so that things don't fall into chaos. He's holding your world together so that things don't fall into chaos. Pain, loss, suffering, these are parts of life in a sin-sick, fallen world. This past week in my home, we were talking about pain. And my youngest son, Cullen, said to me, very matter-of-factly, Dad, I'm not worried about pain. And I said, really? Why is that? He said, well, if there's one thing I've learned from all the years of watching Western movies with you, I know that when pain comes, all I need is a stick to bite down on and a shot of whiskey. (laughs) We watched a lot of Westerns. My son knows, I hope, and we all must know That when pain, loss, suffering, when they come, the only way to endure, the only way to endure is to trust that Jesus with his sovereign hands is holding all things together. There must be some deeper purpose, a good purpose in it all. Here's a non-Western movie reference for you. In the newest Guardians of the Galaxy movie, some of you probably have seen it if you're a Marvel fan, you should have, there's a very important line in the movie. In this movie, we finally learn the backstory of Rocket Raccoon. We learn how he became who he is. And it's a very sad story. It's sort of a a heart-wrenching story because we learn that he's been the experiment, he and many others, the experiment of this mad scientist-type villain. And there's a scene in the movie where Rocket is reunited with his best friend Lila, And Lila says to him, you're not done yet. You still have a purpose on this earth. And Rocket can't believe it. In fact, he says, purpose? What purpose could I possibly have? I'm an experiment. I was made to be thrown away. And Lila says to him, there are the hands that make us, referencing those who brought their suffering. There are the hands that make us, and there are the hands that guide the hands. Now listen to me. When you hit suffering, when you hit pain or loss, the only hope you have to endure is to remember the hands that guide the hands. The risen, reigning, all-powerful, supreme, preeminent Lord Jesus is holding all things together. Somewhere deep down in this, there's a good purpose for you, for those you know, He is working for your good and His glory. He is holding 
all things together. Remember that. Rest in that. That's what Jesus is doing now. He's holding all things together. That's the first point in this passage that I want us to see. Christ's work of creation. But secondly, Paul is going to go on to talk about Christ's work of new creation. New creation. Look at verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul continues to use these terms in reference to Christ that we need to unpack. He's the head of the body. The church is the body of Christ. When we pray for different countries like we do every week, we are praying for other parts of the body. That metaphor of the body shows us how closely related we are as Christians. Whether it's Christians in this same local community or Christians on the other side of the globe, we are the body of Christ. And that means when they hurt, we hurt. When the knee hurts, when the back hurts, it affects the whole body. See, you have to understand that though it's true that we come to Christ individually, we do not exist in Christ solitarily. We come to Christ individually, but we do not exist in Christ solitarily. You are part of the body, the body of Christ. And this body has a head, the authority, the leader, the source of power, and that is Jesus himself. He is the one with all the power. One of the great characters from recent television must be Ron Swanson. You know Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec? Some of you are Ron Swanson fans. If you don't know him, he's a man of few words, strong convictions, and a mighty appetite. Mighty appetite, especially for meat. If you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry, you won't like this illustration. If you're a vegetarian, though, I like you, because that means there's more meat for me to eat. Ron Swanson, in one episode, he goes to eat at his favorite steakhouse. And he gets there only to discover that it's been closed. And it's a heartbreaking experience for him. So he goes to a local diner, and he sits down at the diner, and he orders. He says, give me all the bacon and eggs you have. And the waiter starts to walk away. And Swanson says, no, wait, wait. I fear what you heard was, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. What I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Do you understand? I fear that when we talk about the power of Christ, what you hear is, he has a lot of power. What I'm telling you and what Paul is telling you is that Jesus has all the power there is. Do you understand? He has all the power there is. He is reigning, and he has given us access to his power. That's what Paul goes on to teach us here. He is, Jesus is the beginning. The beginning of what? The new creation the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Now, Paul's already used this term firstborn once. He's using it here as a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He's the beginning of the new creation, which started at the resurrection of Jesus. Why does there need to be a new creation? Because the old creation has been tainted by our sin, by rebellion. In the old creation, things are not as they should be. Things are broken. And so Jesus, with his death and resurrection, inaugurates or begins the new creation. A new power has been unleashed on the world. And that new power begins in us. When through faith you are united to Jesus, you have access to his power. All the power, you have access to it. That new creation power, which means that, yes, your future, your eternity is secure, but it also means that we can live differently here and now. That new creation power is available to you in your marriage. It's available to you in the way that you parent, in the way that you think about and treat your friends. Jesus changes our relationships, all of them, for the better. He is the reconciler. He restores all the broken relationships. That's what Paul says next. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. Fully God who became fully man in order to reconcile us through him. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If all this seems a bit complicated to you, I'll give you a very straightforward way to remember the most important, the punch here. Look to the identity of Jesus to be reminded of his ministry. Who is Jesus? He's the God-man. Fully God, fully man. What did Jesus come to do? Restore the relationship between God and man. In himself, in his identity, we see the very thing he came to do. Jesus, the God-man, restores the relationship between the holy God and sinful humanity. He reconciles us to God, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the new creation power that Jesus has. Now, third and finally, if all of this is true, if Jesus is preeminent, if he's supreme, if he's sufficient, the creator of the world, the one who unleashes this new creation power into the world, if all that is true, then there's only one thing we should do, and that is cling to Christ. Cling to him. And that's our response here at the end of the passage. Verses 21 and 22. And you, Christians, believers, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is the result, the goal of all this that Jesus has done for us? We are holy. Now when the Bible talks about holiness, on the one hand it means something that we have. And on the other hand, it's something we must grow in. It's both. It's both. We have it because of our relationship with Jesus. And that means we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And so we are holy. And yet it's something we must grow in. We grow in holiness. 
we have this new position. We've been reconciled to God. And as a result of that position, we have a new pursuit. The pursuit of holiness, set-apartness for God in the way we live our lives. And what does that mean? What does it mean to pursue holiness? Well, it means many things. But at the top of the list, it means that we continue in faith, which is where Paul closes. Notice this last part. It's vital. In verse 23, the end of our passage, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now listen, this is vital. You've got to hang with me on this. If I've lost you, come back. Over the years, my conversations with Christians has led me to the conclusion that many of us think that faith is something we merely start with but we don't really need throughout all of life. Or we sort of graduate on from it. Oftentimes people think of faith as the rocket boosters on the space shuttle. We need it to escape the gravitational pull of hell. But once we're clear of that, then we're on our own. We trade in the faith for good works and good deeds and earning that relationship with God. No. No. Sure, there's a place for effort. Sure, there's a place for discipline in the Christian life. But that's not the best way to frame this discussion. You must have faith. I must have faith always. In fact, without faith, there's no way to be faithful. Probably the person who has helped me on this subject of faith more than anyone else is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the German monk, the great reformer. You probably know the story of how he nailed those famous 95 statements on the castle church door in Wittenberg in 1517. You've probably heard that story. But I wonder, have you ever read any of those 95 statements? Do you know the very first one? Have you ever read it? I want to share it with you now. Here's the very first of those 95 statements from Martin Luther. It's very simple. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life of believers should be repentance. Now that must mean that the entire life of the believer must be faith. Because we will only repent, we will only confess our sin and repent of it if we know it's safe to do so. If we know that our sin has been covered by the blood of Christ, then and only then will we go to Him confessing, repenting. So you see, the entire life, not just the start of it, the entire life of the Christian must be a life of faith and repentance. Again and again, we return to the cross. We return to Jesus, the preeminent one, who is supreme, who is sufficient. We confess our sins to him. Jesus, I failed again this week. We rely on his power that is available to us through the spirit within us. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I can't love my family sacrificially on my own. I can't put up with these difficult people on my own. I need your power, your strength again and again. 
we return to Jesus. Faith. Faith is not something we just start with. We must continue in it. Cling to Christ. Continue in the faith. Stable. Steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul written so long ago that are so incredibly relevant for us today. Lord, there are times where we try to do things on our own. Maybe we feel like faith is something we needed at the beginning, but now we're, we're just fine. We're okay. We can do things on our own. God, if we have felt, if we have thought that way, I pray that you are convicting us in this very moment of how wrong we are. Lord Jesus, we need you each and every moment. We can't breathe without you. You hold the universe together. You hold our lives together. We want to rely more and more on you. We want to return again and again to the gospel and all that it means for us, all that it means for creation. Help us to be people of faith, continuing in it. Help us to be people of holiness. You've called us to that. You have made us holy and given us the calling of growing in that holiness. May we be people of your word, people of prayer, people of community. Work in our hearts and our lives today. the power of your spirit and the power of your word. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.